Now, I wonder what was going on in your head as I read from Numbers 19 just a few moments ago. I suspect some of you may well have similar experience to the one I had earlier this week in the study as I was prepping for this service. I read through Numbers 19, started off, it was was fine, and then the cogs in my mind started slowing down, and then they eventually ground to a halt, and my eyes glazed over, and I, I could see words on a page, but I just was not taking in all that was there before me. I wonder if anyone else had that experience this morning. And I say that to, to my shame. And, and also to my shame, you know, the great temptation when you come to a very difficult passage of Scripture is you, you sometimes think, I wish I could just skip over this and get to something I do understand. But then you remember the words of the Apostle Paul. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and the woman of God may be made mature and equipped for every good work. Numbers 19 is God's word. And it is useful, it is profitable for teaching us this morning about who God is, who we are, and our great need for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually been my prayer that this week in the study that as we come to this passage, yes, we would, with the help of the Holy Spirit's illumination, see the amazing provision that God made for his Old Testament people in this ritual of purification through the red heifer. But ultimately, my prayer is we'll see beyond it. And we will see that it's really just a type pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, one of the reasons why this is actually a difficult passage on first reading to, to get is because it begins with the remedy and then it goes on and speaks about the problem. So what we're going to do this morning is, is instead of starting in verse 1, we're going to start in verse 11. Our first heading, verse 11 to 22, is to look at the problem, the need for cleansing. The problem is God's people were unclean and defiled by death. And then we'll go back and look at verses 1 through 10, and we'll there see the remedy, the red heifer sacrifice. We'll look at the provision for cleansing. So hopefully you see the the, the logic. So the need for cleansing. Now, if you were here last Sunday evening, or if you were here a number of weeks ago, uh, we looked at Numbers chapter 16. Jack did an absolutely terrific job in it last Sunday evening. And if you were here, you'll remember that we looked at the rebellions of God's people in the wilderness. And it ended with God exercising his just judgment. 14,700 people lay dead in the desert because of their sin and rebellion against God. And as we come to chapter 19, it's clearly in in light of that reality and in other other realities that God wanted his people to have a ritual for purification. You see, God said that anyone who comes into contact with dead bodies, dead corpses, even a grave, that would make them ceremonially unclean. That is unfit and unworthy to be in God's presence. And so someone who was deemed ceremonially unclean, they had to leave the camp 
They were excluded from entering into God's holy presence in the tabernacle until they could be made ceremonially clean. Now just think about it, right? Over 15,000 dead bodies in the camp. You know, we we often see, don't we, in in our television screens, images of refugee camps. And you know one of the deadly disasters that can wreak havoc in a refugee camp is if someone dies and then more people die, diseases spread. What's interesting is that in this passage, it's not, God's not giving them this rite of purification because of health and safety reasons. He's giving them this ritual because God wanted to impress upon his people something about who he is as the holy God and as the God of life and something about his people as sinners who are worthy of death. Now let me just show you the the reason for the need of cleansing. Look down at verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. Then look down at verse 14. This is the law. When someone dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Then look at verse 16. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. You get the point. If you come into contact with anything that is dead dead body, human bone, you will be deemed ceremonially unclean, unfit, unworthy to enter into God's presence. Now, that begs the question, why was coming into contact something that would deem you ceremonially unclean? And this is where we need to have a theology of death. So here's a question for you. Do you have a theology of death? When's the first time in the Bible that death is mentioned? It's in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? When, when God gave his command to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in, in paradise, he, he said to them, you can eat of the fruit of all the trees in this garden, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you shall surely die. And we know the calamity. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And do you remember God's immediate response? He expelled them from the Garden of Eden, from his presence. They, they, they were naked and knew shame, and God had to kill an animal to clothe them. And Adam and Eve, who were made to live in relationship with God, who were made to live to enjoy the blessing of life in the presence of God, ended up knowing the reality of God's curse. They did not live forever. They died. And we need to see that in the Bible, death is inextricably linked to sin. Sin is the cause of death. Death is the consequence of sin. Sin defiles. Sin destroys. Now, 
God was impressing this upon his people because he, he was making clear to his people he's the God of life. You can't bring a trace of death into the presence of God. God is the God of life. He's a God of holiness. Anyone even with, a, with impurities or the defilement of death is not worthy to be in God's presence. It's interesting that in the surrounding cultures to Israel, they all had a very different view of death. Many of the surrounding cultures to Israel had a view that, that you worship the dead that you should commune with the dead through the occult practices, that you would take food to the graves of the dead. It's interesting in the 21st centuries in the West and in our country as as we move further and further away from God, at large as a culture, our our view of death is becoming more and more blasé and less and less informed by the Bible. It's interesting, death, it's a right for people to take the life of a child in a womb. Now there's debates in our parliament about euthanasia, ending life, when and however you will. And we know what happens, the most vulnerable in our society will be impacted by this reality. God wanted his people to know he takes death seriously, and so should they. He is the God of life. He's the God who gives life. So anytime God's people were contaminated by coming into contact with death, they were unworthy to be in God's presence, and so they were deemed ceremonially unclean. They needed cleansing to come into God's presence. And so here in chapter 19, we have this ritual for purification. Now, if you look at down at verse 13, this is what we see. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, he defiles the tabernacle of God, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. And then if you look down at verse 20, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. So it's serious business that God's people, they need cleansing if they are to live in God's presence. Now, Numbers 19 is, 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 in one sense, dealing with a particular issue. God's people have just experienced thousands upon thousands of dead bodies in the camp. But God is also teaching them and us huge spiritual lessons about himself. He is holy. He is the God of life. We are sinful. We, our problem is our sin and, and, and the reality of death. It, it contaminates us. We're all in desperate need of cleansing. We all need as it were, the ritual of purification. Now, if you think about God's ancient people, death was unavoidable. Like, loved ones would pass away. We know that this generation of God's people, God had said, you will not inherit the promised land. You will all die in the desert. And so, for them, death was unavoidable the same way that for you and I, sin is unavoidable. And for them, sin was unavoidable. And if it's unavoidable, do you know what that means? That we need regular, ongoing cleansing. 
All the time they were coming into contact with death. That meant all the time they were going to be deemed ceremonially unclean. And so they needed this ongoing cleansing. You know, um, when we think of sin, we can often think of it being external to us. But the New Testament, Jesus in particular, makes clear that sin is not external to us. It is internal to us. We just sung about it in Psalm 51. We were conceived, we were born with sinful natures. And Jesus makes clear it's not something that is outside of you, that comes into you, that makes you unclean. It's what is within you and comes out of you that is unclean. So Mark chapter 7, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. John Calvin said, we bear the seeds of every possible sin within our hearts. And so the, the, the picture that God's Old Testament people have been given is that they need cleansing because they live in a world in, inhabited by sin and death. And the picture we're seeing is that we as God's people too, we need cleansing because we are contaminated by sin. It's really interesting that you could, if you were a Jew at that point, you could accidentally come into contact with death. You know, you could go visit a friend and you didn't know that their parent had just passed away and you touch the tent, you're ceremonially unclean. You could be out a walk in a field and little do you know that there's actually been a fight, someone's been slain with a sword and they're dead and, and you stumble upon it, you're ceremonially unclean. Interestingly, you know, you know in the New Testament when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you whitewash the tombs. Do you know why the Jews whitewash the tombs? So that every time they would see a dead person's grave, they would know not to go near it and be ceremonially unclean. Now, when it comes to sin, sometimes we sin unintentionally. The flesh is weak. We, we, we are, the spirit is willing, we want to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength, but we, we can't. Sometimes we sin intentionally. Sometimes we go headlong into sin. And sometimes we sin because of carelessness and thoughtlessness. It's interesting, I, I don't know how you deal with sin in your own life, but there can be that temptation with sin is that you just think, if I could get rid of so many things that are external to me, it, it, it would help me in my battle with sin. There's, there's that uh, reality that's plagued God's people for, for centuries. Where many of God's people who, who hate the battle with sin have said, I just wish I could go and be on my own, far from anything that would pollute me and defile me. And the desert fathers, they tried it, right? They, they went to the desert... Thinking if I can just void things that would stimulate sin in my life, then I'll be free. And they discovered that when you're actually alone with your own thoughts, you actually come to realize how, just how sinful you truly are. Some of us, in an attempt to deal with sin, yeah, we know God's law. We really don't want to break God's law so we can be like Pharisees and we can add more laws to God's law. The problem is laws don't change your heart. You know, in the 21st century culture, Sinclair Ferguson once pointed this out. When a culture rejects its Judeo-Christian 
foundation, when it abandons the moral law of God, as it were, do you know what they, they need to do? They need to make more and more laws. And so, so, so our governments are always making laws. And often the new laws, it's, it can deem that which was once good as evil, and that which is evil is now good. And, and, and in, the, in all the attempts to make all these laws, they think they can change hearts. But the reality is laws can't change a thing. We can't live up to God's law. Try living up to your own laws. You'll never do it. The problem is not what is external to us. The problem is that which is internal to us. And so this passage, this second half of this passage, highlights to us our desperate need for cleansing. I want to say this. You are more sinful. You are more unclean than you realize. You're in desperate need for cleansing. Now, God's Old Testament people, in that illustration I've just given, right, they were always coming into contact with death. So that meant that they needed a provision that would have ongoing impacts for them to be cleansed. Couldn't just be once. In one sense, it had to have ongoing effect. And that's the same with us as Christians. Come to Christ, you're cleansed, but we still sin every day. And so we need a sacrifice once and for all, but that has ongoing effect on our lives. Well, that's where we come now to look at the the remedy, the provision for cleansing. So let's look back at verse 1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, this is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Now, I need you to see this. This purification ritual did not originate, was not invented in the imaginations of Moses and Aaron. This purification ritual originated and was invented in the infinitely wise mind of Almighty God. And the reason I need to stress that is that this glorious idea came about because of God's good and glorious purposes for his people. God wants his people not to be defiled by death and sin, but to be freed in order to live in his presence and to serve him. God wants you to live and thrive and flourish. So this is God's idea for restoring and renewing people to fellowship with himself. Now, verse 2, we get the description of the animal that was to be used for sacrifice. We need to tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. If you've studied the Old Testament sacrificial System, you'll know that this is the first time we read about a female cow being used for sacrifice. Red heifer. It's normally bulls, goats, lambs, rams. But in this instance, it's to be a red heifer. Why red? Well, they were rare. But as we're going to see, key in this passage is blood. And perhaps it's because the symbolism of blood that is so important. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But notice that this, this, this animal has got all the sacrificial overtones. Without blemish, without defect. One that's never had a yoke put upon it. That is a perfect animal. And that again communicates something to us about who God is. God is perfect. The only sacrifices that He will accept are perfect sacrifices. Pointing us to who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is without blemish, without defect, sinless, spotless, son 
Lamb of God. Now notice what happens, right? The people bring a red heifer to Moses and Aaron. Verse 3. Moses and Aaron, you shall give it to Eleazar, the priest. Remember, Eleazar is the son of Aaron, the high priest. And it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. Now, if you know anything about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you should be saying, this is different. Because when a sacrifice was offered, it was offered where? In the tabernacle. At the altar. Where's this sacrifice to be offered? Outside the camp. Now, alarm bells should be ringing in your minds. If you know the New Testament, if you know he chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, you know this. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the camp. Why? Because crucifixion was an abhorrent way to die. He was taken outside the city to the place of shame and exclusion. Do you know that outside of the city of Jerusalem was the rubbish tip of endless burning, Gehenna? What characterized Jesus' death was he was to be slain outside the city in the place of shame and exclusion, the place where people and things are worthy of death. That's the gospel. In miniature. Being depicted in this red heifer, being taken outside the camp to be slain. Just incidentally, this is just more of a side point, but see in Hebrews chapter 13, it says that Jesus suffered outside the camp. And then there's an application. Therefore, let us go, those who are God's people, those who are disciples, to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Uh, Daniel and Ellie made vows today that they promised to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in dependence upon his Holy Spirit. One of the realities of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that we will be regarded as outsiders. We will have to bear the reproach of our Savior. That's what's involved in following the Lord Jesus as a disciple. Verse 4. Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the tent of meeting seven times. This is a really unusual thing to happen. Normally what would happen is an animal would be slain and its blood would be poured at the bottom of the altar. Now we're told Eliezer the priest, he takes his finger, puts it in the blood, and then in the the direction of the tent of meeting, he starts sprinkling it. Now, just another aside. We're a Presbyterian church. We don't get hung up over the mode of baptism. But when we baptize, we sprinkle and uh, it's interesting, if you look at the Old Testament, purification, cleansing, you, you ask yourself, what, what is the mode? <laughs> it's sprinkling. So the priest, he, he sprinkles it. And, and where does he sprinkle it? In the, te- in, the, in the direction of the tent of meeting. Why does he sprinkle it that way? Because what's this sin offering ultimately going to do? It's going to enable God's people to be cleansed in order that they can enter into God's holy presence again. You need to understand, though, that what's key to this whole sin offering is 
blood. Blood is the potent agent of purification because blood is a symbol of death and purification can only come through the death of a substitute. Now again, if you know the New Testament, you know this. The blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of the red heifer could not, did not atone for the sins of the people. It was symbolic. But what what blood does atone for the sins of God's people? The shed blood of Jesus. We're going to sing this song in just a few moments. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Maybe you've, you've been around Christianity and, and, and you're not a Christian yourself and, and you've heard all this talk before of blood, being washed in the blood. You thought it bizarre. But actually, it's the perfect picture of, 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 of atonement. It's a, it's a perfect picture of substitution. Christ has to die. He has to be able to p- take the penalty and the punishment that our sin deserves in himself so that we can be made right, forgiven. Our sin can be atoned for so that we can be made at one with God. Now, now what happens next is really interesting. After the sprinkling, the whole animal was to be burdened, and, and literally the whole animal, and the blood, and it's done. And as it was being burned, the priest was to come, and he was to put cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn into the fire. And if you know anything about those ingredients, they're often mentioned in passages to do with cleansing. We just sung about hyssop in Psalm 51. And some commentators speculate there is a red tint, obviously scarlet yarn. So you've got the, 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 the blood and the, the, the heifer being burnt. You've got these ingredients added. And then what will be left at the end are ashes. And what's really important for us to know is that this is going to be the means by which people can become ceremonially clean. These ashes, when mixed with water, clean water, you can take a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch is like a flower at the top of it. It's got a flowering thing that's sponge-like. You dip it in a little bit of ashes and water, and you sprinkle it, and it makes people clean. What's fascinating about this sacrifice, it's so different from every other sacrifice in the Old Testament, is this sacrifice would be made once. And these ashes, then the water that could be added to them, it could be used days, weeks, months, years after that red heifer had been sacrificed. It was a once, if you like, and for a long time sacrifice. Making the connection? This is a type of Jesus' one and for all sacrifice. Now, because God's people could in an instant become ceremonially unclean, well, they had a means by which they could become clean on the third and on the seventh day, they just had to get a friend who was clean, and he could come and he could dip the hyssop in the ashes and in the water, and then he could sprinkle it on them on the third day and the seventh day, and then when they bathed, they're ceremonially clean. And I know that for us, right, as modern people, this feels so mo- this seems so foreign and so bizarre. But it's really interesting. Not long ago, there was an article in the Times, and it was chatting about Matt Hancock and why he went into the jungle. 
And this time's journalist captured something brilliant. He went into the jungle and I'm a celebrity because he wanted to atone for his sins. He wanted to make people like him. He wanted to get right with the public. You see, we all have this deep need that we need to be cleansed, that we need to be made right. And God here amazingly provides his people with a red cow sacrifice that can take them and make them who are unclean, clean. And it's not just for God's people. For sojourners living in the land as well, they can make use of it. Again, pointing us to the gospel. But but did you see the big paradox in this passage? There's this strange feature. The priest who oversees the sacrifice, because of his involvement, he's unclean until evening. The guy who burns the red heifer, he's unclean until the evening. The one who gathers the ashes, puts them in a container, places them in a safe place, he's unclean until the evening. Your friend who's clean, who sprinkles you with his up, he's to be clean, and when he sprinkles you, He's unclean. He gets involved in the process and they, in a sense, sacrifice their cleanness to become unclean. Do you see it? Do you see the the, the gospel parallel? Jesus, who is the sinless, spotless, without blemish, without defect, Son of God takes on himself sin. He who knew no sin, so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. You know that the most staggering thing about this sacrifice is there is no cost involved whatsoever for the person who needs to be cleansed. But there's cost to the people involved in making the cleansing. I just think of the cost involved for Jesus. It's funny, you read through the Gospels and see during his life and ministry... Jesus could touch someone who was unclean. Jesus could touch someone who was dead. And he would never be unclean. He would make them clean. He would raise the dead. But see on the cross, also different. He who was sinless was made to be sin. His blood had to be shed, poured out, so that our sins and the stain of our sin could be washed clean. It was at great cost. Jesus became shockingly filthy and dirty. And what's fascinating is if, if we're to understand Numbers 19 aright, that it's a type of Christ, we need to go to the New Testament. And you all know where in the New Testament the red heifer's mentioned, don't you? It's that obvious verse. Tucked away in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a red heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So here's what Hebrews Hebrews 9.13 says. If the blood that's sprinkled from the ashes of the red heifer, if they purify someone externally, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And this is, this is incredible, right? 
this Old Testament type says how much more. It could only clean someone externally so that you could enter into God's presence, but it never actually dealt with the problem. How much more will the blood of Christ, the perfect, spotless, without blemish, Lamb of God, how much more will his blood cleanse our conscience? And if you know Hebrews, you know that verse in chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with faith, with our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, clean from an evil conscience. If you've come to Jesus in faith, if you trust in him for what he's done, here's what happens. Your conscience is cleansed. There's a sense in which, a Christian assurance of faith, there's a deep sense in which your conscience has is, is, is testified to you that you're a sinner deserving God's judgment. But when you become a Christian, this incredible thing happens where you realize that because of what Jesus has done, your conscience is cleansed. It's free from the guilt that, that, that is truly ours, but, but Jesus has dealt with in his atonement. But here's the thing. When we go through our daily Christian lives, we keep on sinning. And I've struggled with this for a long time as a Christian. I can look at the death of Jesus and I can understand his past once and for all sacrifice has dealt with my past sins. I get that. No problem. And I also get the future hope for me that I'm going to be with God in eternity. But you know what I do struggle with? See, when I sin today, and I feel dirty, and I feel guilty, my conscience testifies within me that there's a problem. I often struggle to apply the blood of Jesus to my conscience today. And there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. This never-ceasing flood. See, Jesus' once and for all sacrifice has ongoing benefits and blessings for us as God's people today. Do you know what God in divine design has set up? Every day as God's people, that's why we have a liturgy in our service. We go through call to worship, prayer, prayer of confession, respond, hear his word, and then respond in praise. Every day, our liturgy should be something similar to that. Every day, we need to confess our sins. Because every day, as we walk through life, we get the grime of sin on us. Not long ago, at a house group, we were studying um, John chapter 13, Jesus' upper room discourse. And in that exposition that we heard, it's that story that's so funny. Jesus gets down to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, Jesus, Jesus, give me a bath. (laughs) Wash all of me, in essence. What does Jesus say? Those who have been cleansed, those who have been washed clean, right? Those who have had a bath, they only need their feet cleaned. The dirt and their ground taken off them. That's the picture of our Christian lives. Those who have been cleansed because of trusting in Jesus, we've had that comprehensive cleansing, but as we walk and journey through the life of faith, we got grime, we sin, and so God has designed it that we confess our sin, which means... His once and for all sacrifice done in the past has significance to our present. The blood of Jesus is significant for us today. Do you realize that? 
And, and, and this is where Hebrews, 13, uh, Hebrews 9, 14 says something even more glorious. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you know once that you're forgiven by God? You're not just unable to live in his presence. You're invited to serve him. You're invited to do good works for him, with him. He he cleanses you, purifies you, sets you free. And our grateful response should be, God, I want to obey you. I want to live for you. I want to go in the path of service. And so if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, right? And, and, And right now, maybe you're burdened with guilt and shame because of a sin you've committed, whether it's way back in the past or whether it was just this past week. You know what you need to do? You need to confess your sin to God. And he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You need to apply the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, his blood, to you today. And you know if you're here and you're not a Christian, and and you're being really honest with yourself, and maybe uh, under God's word you've come to hear that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, you need to come to Christ in faith and receive the gift that he offers you, atonement. His shed blood shed for you so your sins can be forgiven. And you know, if you are a Christian and you do that, and if you are a non-Christian and you do that, you know what you and I response is, is to go into this week in grateful obedience and to serve them. To go outside of the camp. To be willing to bear the reproach. To do it joyfully. Because he took our shame. He was excluded for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray.